Christmas is important, but Easter is crucial. Christmas is important, but Easter is crucial. I wonder if you know who uttered those words, that bit of spiritual wisdom. Christmas is important, but Easter is crucial. Not a pope, not an archbishop, but actually a famous Buddhist of North London, Arsene Wenger. I think Arsene Wenger was referring to football and your position in the Premier League when he said Christmas is important, but Easter is crucial. Um, but I've sort of borrowed his words because I think it's an important message for us in the Christmas season. And we are still in the Christmas season. If you remember the song, The Twelve Days, what day are we on now? Day seven. How many, what have we got on day seven? Swans are swimming? Is it something like that? I can't remember. Um, the great bit of trivia we've learned in our household this year is that were you to receive all of the gifts of the song, you would have 364 gifts. So that's really helpful. Put that in your pocket ready for the next pub quiz with uh, a Christmas round. Uh, we've got our Advent candles lit and our central white candle lit uh, to remind us that that's the candle that we lit at midnight uh, on Christmas Eve at midnight Holy Communion. And we are still in the Christmas season, the season of feasting and celebrating the birth of Jesus. God incarnate, God in the flesh, God in person, God moved into our neighborhood, God come to meet us. And yet, at Christmas, we always have an eye on Easter as well. It's interesting and struck me, I think for the first time this year, that at Midnight Holy Communion, the very first thing we do when we celebrate Jesus' birth is we then celebrate his death. And I want to help us think a bit more about Jesus' birth and Jesus' death today through thinking a bit about Joseph and thinking about what uh, it means in the names of Jesus given uh, in the dream that Joseph had, the vision of the angel. But let me begin with um, Joseph. I want to talk about Joseph. I want to talk then about, a bit about Christmas and Easter and a bit about how Jesus um, provides a means for us to find freedom. But firstly, Joseph, two weeks ago, on uh, the final Sunday of Advent, the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, we, we mark and remember Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I often wax lyrical about how we need to recover Mary, particularly in this sort of Protestant tradition uh, where we've tended to marginalize Mary, push her to the side a bit, and uh, particularly in that low evangelical tradition where maybe we've associated thinking about Mary with all things Roman Catholic and maybe we're a little bit suspicious of that. But what I want us to do is recover Mary as uh, an exemplar of Christian life, Christian life lived in obedience. And I've said it many times before, Mary is this wonderful woman who, when given a commission by uh, the angelic visitor, by Gabriel, says, here am I, the servant of the Lord, may it be to me according to your word. So Mary's a wonderful example for us in Christian life and faith. But so too is Joseph. Now we heard a bit about Joseph in the Bible reading today. And in fact, Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2 puts a bit of a spotlight on Joseph as somebody who also, in his own way, trusts in God's word, in God's promises, in what God is going to do through this newborn child that Joseph will raise as father. And, uh, and, and Joseph responds with a similar obedience, not quite the same obedience as Mary, but a similar obedience. Because Joseph trusts God based on 
angelic visitations, upon a divine utterance, upon a word, a, a prophetic uh, uh, voice, rather than tangible evidence. Joseph, in that sense, is much like all of us. He trusts based on a word, a testimony, rather than necessarily the physical evidence that is emerging as it does in Mary's body herself. Think about doubting Thomas. At the, the very end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20, Thomas wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them. Uh, and for a week or so, Thomas is baffled. He's like, this is ridiculous. People don't rise from the dead. What are you talking about? I don't believe it. Unless I see it with my eyes and touch the wounds of my fingers, I will not believe it. And then what happens? Jesus appears uh, to Thomas. And Thomas is invited to inspect the wounds. Think of the famous Caravaggio portrait of Thomas inserting his fingers into the wound in Jesus' side. And, and Thomas says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He has a revelation. He, he realizes when confronted with the tangible physical evidence of Jesus in front of him that Jesus has risen from the dead and that the claims of the other disciples are true. And how does Jesus respond? He says, blessed are you, Thomas, because you have seen and you have believed. But blessed are those who believe though they have not seen. Well, that's all of us, isn't it? Each of us put our faith in Jesus Christ, not because we have inspected his wounds as Thomas did, not because we have carried him in our bodies as Mary did, but rather because we have believed a testimony, we've believed the evidence, we've heard a word, uh, a prophetic utterance, an angelic voice that has given us uh, a compelling and persuasive reason to put our faith in God and to believe. And so Joseph, I think, is for us uh, an example of our way of following Jesus. He trusts God despite the potential and actual social stigma, scandal, and shame. M Mary had the physical evidence that God's word to her was being fulfilled as her body changed shape, as the baby within her womb grew and her torso enlarged and she felt the infant Jesus inside her, wriggling, kicking, as so many mothers have experienced. And Joseph, of course, also had this physical, tangible evidence to look at and observe and feel. But always that niggling voice, that voice that was the source of the social shame and stigma and scandal. Did she lie with another man? Is this really God's divine intervention, or is this just the natural cycle of things. And yet, faithful to the angelic utterance, to the call of God, uh, to the commission given him, he remained with her, he married her, he cared for her, he nurtured her, uh, and then uh, when the time came, uh, took her to Bethlehem, and we know the Christmas story. We've been rehearsing that the last few weeks. Where Mary has physical, tangible evidence of God's promises being fulfilled, Joseph sees them only as far-off future promises requiring faith and trust despite the evidence. Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 is instructed to name uh, the son, the child, Jesus, because God will save his people from their sins. Jesus is a form of uh, the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, simply meaning God saves. God saves. God saves us from our sins. Well, it would be 33, 34 years before 
the cross and resurrection before Jesus' atoning sacrifice. And indeed, Scripture suggests that Joseph never got to see that promise, that prophetic utterance fulfilled in his lifetime, for he is absent uh, in the accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we think probably that Mary was by that stage a widow. Mary, we know, was with Jesus even as he was uh, on the cross. But Joseph, not so much. Matthew 1, just before the passage we read, Joseph uh, receives an angelic visitation telling us two things about Jesus' name. First, that he'll be called Jesus, Yeshua, God saves, he will save us from our sins. And secondly, that he will be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Jesus, God who saves, is for us, and Emmanuel is God with us. For us, with us, with us, for us. Christmas and Easter, as we shall see. And I think this idea about Jesus' names reminding us that he's for us and he's also with us is important for understanding the significance of Jesus' life and ministry. Sam Wells is the vicar of St. Martin in the Fields, and over recent years he's been a big proponent of talking about uh, God with us, Emmanuel, uh, as opposed to God for us. Sam Wells has done this partly because he has seen uh, a long history of thinking about what God has done for us as being overly concerned with our sin and our need for forgiveness and uh, the divine remedy in Jesus' death and resurrection. And he sees it as being a little overly negative in its diagnosis of our condition. For us, God for us, Jesus saving us from our sins is rooted in the reality of our sin and our need for forgiveness. Whereas Sam Wells would say, with us is rooted in our isolation and our need for relationship and solidarity. You see the divide that he's making? Many centuries of talking about God being, what, what Jesus has done for us is rooted in this idea of uh, us being bound by sin and in need of forgiveness and Jesus somehow taking the punishment that was ours. Um, but Sam Wells is wanting to re-emphasize Emmanuel, God with us, relational solidarity, closeness. And this is about metaphors of the atonement. This is about ways of understanding what Jesus was doing at Easter. What does it mean for Jesus' blood to be given for us? What does it mean for Jesus' blood to be poured out as an atoning sacrifice? Well, I'm sure we can get to that in three months' time when we're thinking in Lent uh, and approaching Easter. I'm sure we'll think a bit more about it. But let me just give you two ways of thinking about this idea of Jesus' blood being given for us. One is a, a legal metaphor. It's about Jesus being punished in our place, a blood sacrifice. And in ancient cultures, blood sacrifices were required to put things to rights for, for the sake of justice both in Nordic cultures and in uh, ancient medieval cultures. It's a legal metaphor. Justice being done by Jesus giving his blood for us, a blood sacrifice. But there's another metaphor we can turn to, which is the medical metaphor. And that's the metaphor of a blood transfusion. Something that overcomes our sickness with his health. Jesus' blood being given for us because our blood is, as it were, contaminated and 
ruined by the sin which has reached into every part of our lives. And we are helpless to help ourselves, and so we need a blood transfusion. We need healthy blood coming from another source for us to refresh, to renew us, to sustain us in life and health. Do you see how we can have the legal metaphor, we can have the medical metaphor for thinking about what it means about God's blood being given for us? Now, I don't think we need to treat these as either or. I think we can take both aspects. But I do think we can recognize that that medical metaphor might be easier for people in our age and culture to understand. Because we don't live in a culture which is accustomed to blood sacrifice, sacrificing animals or um, justice being brought by vengeance uh, on other people, taking their blood as a sort of reparation. But we do live in an age where people understand the idea of, of medical treatment understand the idea of medical therapies to, to um, sort of destroy cancerous cells or to replace diseased blood. We live in an age where that's a powerful and potent metaphor. Jesus has given his blood for us, perhaps like a blood transfusion, so that we might have his health dwelling within us. Just as an aside, I'm reading a history of the Tudor age at the moment, which was incredibly violent and bloody. And, uh, and I was thinking about it as I was reading this week. You can see how taking the punishment in my place might have been a more powerful idea in an age where life was cheap and people were subject to violent um, deaths and violent torture all the time. Uh, in an age where there is much more kind of capricious and cruel punishment, you can see how Jesus taking the punishment in my place might uh, have a little bit more purchase. Jesus, he will be called Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. God is for us and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Holding both of these metaphors together, Christmas and Easter. That's a reflection upon Joseph's first angelic visitation recorded in Matthew 1. What then of his second angelic visitation that Pauline read for us a moment ago? When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Escape to Egypt. It's another part of the... Christmas story that we tend not to dwell on very much. I rarely see a primary school nativity play which puts uh, front and centre the murderous rage of Herod reported in this story. Although if you've watched uh, the Christmas movie Nativity, I was reminded that uh, in the Christmas movie Nativity, one of the schools does decide to put the account of Herod murdering all the infants and boys under two front and centre. It's a pretty shocking um, and, and also amusing scene. But there was an early threat to the life of Jesus from Herod. But Joseph, again, entrusts an obedience to the angelic visitation and that uh, prophetic utterance escaped into Egypt. The Bible goes on to say that this was to fulfill the prophetic word that out of Egypt I called my son. And, and it's there in Matthew's gospel to remind us that Jesus is like Moses. Remember how hundreds of years earlier, Moses had led God's people out of slavery in Egypt 
through the waters of the Red Sea, which parted in front of them, and, and through the wilderness to the very border of the promised land. Moses led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, through the wilderness, and right to the border of the promised land. Who brought them into the promised land, into freedom, into all of God's promises? Well, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, again, for God saves. But here in Matthew chapter 2, the gospel writer Matthew is reminding us straight away that Jesus is like a new Moses. Where the first Moses delivered God's people from slavery in Egypt, the second Moses, Jesus, is going to deliver us from our slavery to sin and death and lead us into freedom in the promised land, freedom in God's kingdom. For this to happen, for this to be fulfilled, Jesus must go to Egypt and then come out of Egypt. That's what Matthew believes. And Joseph escapes to Egypt with Mary, with Jesus, to escape Herod's murderous rage. Reading this passage over the last few weeks, I found myself thinking about escape rooms. They're all the rage at the moment, aren't they? I keep on going past sort of shop fronts, which are sort of escape room challenges. I think they're used a lot for corporate work days or stag nights or hen nights or things like that. They, I've never been in one, but they basically seem to me to be like a version of the Crystal Maze, if you ever saw that show on TV, where there's challenges and clues to decipher and you've got to sort of escape within a certain amount of time. We held our own um, nativity escape room here on Christmas Eve at our crib service, and we had some clues for children and adults to decipher so that they could go and then find all the pieces uh, of the nativity scene which we built here at the front And at the end of our nativity escape room, we remembered that Jesus is the key to set us free. All of us are in bondage. All of us are enslaved in some way or another. All of us are bound by some kind of chains. Could be chains of self-doubt, chains of anxiety, chains of addiction, chains of greed, chains of poverty, chains of our own sin. In the famous Christmas story by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, the first ghostly visitation that Ebenezer Scrooge receives is actually of his former work colleague, Jacob Marley, who, remind, who, 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 who tells him to expect three further ghostly visitations. But Jacob Marley uh, appears wrapped in chains that he describes of being uh, forged by his own deeds, chains of his own making. Jesus is the key to unlock the chains that bind us. Jesus is the key for our escape from the murderous rage of sin that seeks to destroy our life just as Herod would have destroyed the lives of so many children. Jesus comes alongside us to show us the way. Jesus is with us, God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus dies for us to give us his blood as blood sacrifice and blood transfusion. So perhaps Arsene Wenger was right. Christmas and Easter. Christmas is important. Easter is crucial. Christmas we remember particularly that God is with us, Emmanuel. Easter particularly we remember that God is for us. He has worked our salvation 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In every moment that we celebrate Jesus' birth at Christmas, we also must, needs must, remember and celebrate his death and resurrection at Easter. Only when we remember that God is with us and God is for us in the person of Jesus do we get the whole story, the whole glory of the gospel.